This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10, from Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. Um, we've got Sir Edward Carson, um, who is the first of uh, the leaders on our list to have taken the job after uh, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, the 1911 Parliament Act, uh, which is what curbed the power of the Lords. And so from here on, the Commons is the preeminent uh, house. Um, and he was leader of the opposition for just over a year between October 1915 and December of the following year, 1916. Um, that was, of course, during the First World War. So it's rather unusual circumstances. And the first unusual thing is that he wasn't the leader of one of the major parties. He was actually uh, an Irish Unionist uh, MP uh, and a major figure in the politics of, of Northern Ireland. Um, this was during a period where uh, the issue over um, Irish Home Rule and then the partition of Ireland um, later on took place. Um, and if you go to Stormont now, there's a huge sort of statue of him outside Parliament buildings there, uh, marking his contribution as a, a leader of the Ulster Unionists. So he's a very significant figure in uh, both Irish politics and uh, Northern Irish politics, and that's really where his uh, his uh, reputation comes from. Um, and he began his career as a, a radical liberal, um, but he became a, a liberal unionist uh, over his opposition to, to Irish home rule. Um, and, and the Irish uh, unionists, the uh, liberal unionists then were very much aligned with the Conservatives. So um, he was a barrister um, and uh, he was then appointed as Solicitor General in uh, the Conservative Lord Salisbury's government. Um, then during the First World War, when um, Asquith, the Liberal Prime Minister, formed a coalition government in um, 1915, he was then made Attorney General. Um, but he only lasted five months in that job because uh, he resigned in protest at the way that the war was going. Um, and because the, all of the other parties then were uh, in coalition at the time, 
he effectively became the de facto leader of the opposition for about the next year, uh, leading a group of uh, opposition unionist MPs. Um, so that's where he sort of qualifies to get on the list. And um, he then played a significant role, might be rather apt today, he played a significant role in getting the Prime Minister to resign. Um, forcing Asquith out um, and getting Lloyd George to take over as Prime Minister in December 1916. Um, and at that point, he, he returned to government um, as First Lord of the Admiralty. So um, quite a, a short, uh, not, not the shortest period we've had as a leader of the opposition, but a fairly short period in unusual circumstances, um, but one in which he, he had quite a significant um, effect. The other thing I must just quickly mention is that earlier in his career as a barrister, he was actually the barrister who was appointed by the Marquess of Queensbury to defend him in the libel trial brought by Oscar Wilde, which uh, was rather fascinating. And uh, the two of them knew each other um, from childhood. Wilde and he knew each other. And Wilde quipped um, when he discovered that he was, it was his old friend who was going to be leading the charge against him. He said, no doubt he will pursue his case with all the added bitterness of an old friend. Nigel Fletcher there with the story of Edward Carson. Next up is William Adamson, who was chairman of the Labour Party between 1917 and 1921. Although his claim to being a leader of the opposition is slightly disputed. We've got a bit of a, um, a landmark. We've got our first Labour leader of the opposition. Um, quite fitting, given uh, your discussion earlier about the current one. Um, but it wouldn't be um, this list if it wasn't for um, it being a fairly controversial choice, because there is some disagreement about whether he was actually... Uh, leader of the opposition. Um, but I think under the accepted definition that uh, we, we're working on, he, he certainly was. He was um, chairman of the Labour Party between 1917 and 1921. So he was the de facto leader of the Labour Party. Um, and in the general election of uh, 1918, um, the Labour Party became the largest party um, that was in the House of Commons. It, it didn't win the, the most number of seats in that election um, because uh, Sinn Féin actually won 73 uh, MPs in that election, but they didn't take their seats. So Labour were next with 57 seats. Um, and behind them was the non-coalition Liberals. The Liberal Party had split at that time and they were down to around um, 30. Um, and the, the leader, the former Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, actually lost his seat in that election. So the Labour Party were clearly the largest bloc. Uh, in the House of Commons at the time. So by any definition, their leader, William Adamson, um, should have been leader of the opposition. And in fact, he did press his claim to that. Um, he was um, the person who was asking the business question in the uh, Commons every week, which is one of the things that uh, the leader of the opposition uh, tended to do during that time. Um, but there was a disagreement between um, him and uh, Sir Donald Maclean, who I think we'll look at next week, who was the leader of this sort of rump of liberals who weren't in the uh, the coalition. Um, and they sort of fought out between the two of them as to who would, would be leader of the opposition. Um, but, but what I, I find really interesting is that a lot of the histories say that um, the uh, position was taken um, by that liberal leader, Donald Maclean, and um, that William Adamson didn't press his claim. Um, from, from what I've seen, he certainly did. And in the first meeting of Parliament um, after the election, he, he very explicitly made that claim to be the, the leader of the official opposition. So I think he qualifies to be on the list, even if um, Wikipedia and other people um, say that he he doesn't. But I suppose it's an interesting question, is it particularly the role of a leader of the opposition up against a, a, a national government in a war, you know, in a, in a wartime situation? It's a... It's a um, what the role is and who's playing that role, you know, these things aren't sort of set down in stone. Yeah, and it's a, an issue that you always have with a, a time of national crisis. I mean, um, Keir Starmer has had this issue with uh, with COVID, the, the extent to which the, the opposition should support 
the government is always um, quite controversial and certainly in wartime it becomes much more so but as you say with a coalition government it's much more uh, difficult and so we we essentially had a huge majority um, for the government because you had the Conservatives and most of the Liberal Party in, in coalition together. Um, and then in that uh, khaki election in 1918, at the sort of uh, end of the First World War, um, the, those two combined parties, the Conservatives and the Coalition Liberals, won um, 506 seats. So they had a huge majority. So, you know, th there were very few opposition parties, but Labour was certainly um, ahead. And, and talking about sort of how uh, you sort of define who the opposition is during during wartime. We'll we'll talk about that a bit when we get towards the Second World War, where some quite interesting things happened then. When you could argue there wasn't really an opposition because most of the parties were then um, in government, and the same was true in the First World War. So we've had this this problem um, a few times. Um, but um, to go back to sort of William Adamson's background, as I say, he's a, the first Labour leader, and um, this was at a time when the Labour Party was. Um, sort of coming into its own. Um, he was he was Scottish. Um, he was born in Dunfermline in 1863. Um, and uh, we normally do the joke about where these people were educated. Well, he was educated at a small local school and, and left school um, at the age of 11 um, to go down the mines. Um, he was a miner for 27 years. Um, and that's how he got into politics. He became involved in the National Union of Mine Workers. Um, and that's what uh, brought him into politics. He, he uh, became a Labour councillor, the Labour Party, um, of course, being formed in 1900. So it was quite a long time uh, into his career before he turned to politics. Um, and then he was first elected as an MP um, in uh, West Fife in 1910. Um, and then during the, the First World War, then he, he succeeded Arthur Henderson as chairman of the Labour Party um, in 1917, towards the closing stages of the, the First World War. Um, and as I say, in that election, the Labour Party increased its support quite significantly, um, and they they won two million votes, which was more than um, either of the the Liberal factions, the, the Coalition Liberals, or the um, the other faction that was was outside the coalition. Um, and he was made a Privy Councillor after the election, so um, he he was a successful leader. Uh, um, and then six years later, when Labour formed its its first government, um, he was uh, then uh, became Scottish Secretary and returned to government again in uh, 1929. Um, so he's quite significant figure in the Labour movement but as I think you said earlier um, I think most people struggle to name him yeah that's it's really uh, it's really interesting that and I suppose it's partly because political parties write their own histories and uh, for whatever reason he's you know the first leader of the opposition uh, uh, Labour leader in the in the House of Commons is, is is that's just not he's clearly not been one of those who's been sort of romanticised in that way actually despite the fact he was just saying there in terms of his, terms of his background Scottish coal miner that ticks quite a lot of boxes for the Labour Party sort of folklore. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and when I sort of um, do some of my lectures on the history of the Labour Party, I always talk about heroes and villains and the sort of mythology. And um, there's been quite a lot written about this um, by by much more intelligent people than me about the sort of the importance of um, mythology, particularly to the Labour Party. And they've got their heroes and villains. Um, and you know, you have uh, Attlee obviously as a as a significant. Um, hero figure. Um, you, you have others who are, are seen as, as being sort of less so. We've, one of one of whom is receiving the garter today, I believe, at Windsor. <laughs> um, Tony Blair is uh, in some in some quarters a, a great hero, and in other quarters a, a great villain. And so this is important. So it is it is quite interesting. I mean, we we, we know names like Arthur Henderson um, and uh, George Lansbury and people like that in the sort of early history of the Labour Party. But William Adamson, I mean, I'll confess, I didn't know very much about him either until I researched this. So it's interesting how the history of this is, is written. But I think um, unquestionably, 
um, under the definition, and indeed having looked at Hansard and looked at the debates then, he did press his claim to be leader of the opposition. And so um, I'm going to make a case here for, for saying, you know, we ought to reestablish his reputation. He was the first Labour leader of the opposition. Nigel, I, I, if, any, if anyone can make the case, it's Nigel Fletcher from the Centre for Opposition Studies. So that seems like a, that seems like a reasonable uh, uh, argument. I wonder as well, there's a slight different, maybe this is a conversation for another day, but uh, the, the psychology of two... Uh, the two political parties, like the Conservatives really sort of deified their big stonking winners, you know, Margaret Thatcher socking it to uh, to the left and to the minors, you know, in a landslide lecture, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, the Conservatives in particular, you know, stonking majorities and all that. But the Labour Party seemed to get all a bit queen, sort of squeamish about that and actually sort of slightly fetishised those who, who actually didn't win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there is something about the fact that the Labour Party comes from um, the Labour movement and as a party of, of, of protest that gives it something slightly different in its um, in its makeup. The Conservative Party is often talked about as um, a party that is um, single-mindedly determined to win power at all costs, whereas the Labour Party, I think, sees itself much more as a movement. And I think that is a difference in their psychology. Yeah. Um, but yes, they, they, they romanticise certain... Uh, um, heroes and you know you have other villains like Ramsay MacDonald who um, in any other definition was quite a successful leader the first Labour Prime Minister but then because of the, the fact that he he then sort of formed a coalition with the yeah the they don't like him. a huge villain as well so that was William Adamson chairman of the Labour Party we turn to the Liberal Party now Sir Donald Maclean Liberal leader of the opposition from 1918 to 1920 well, this week's leader um, has got quite a um, famous name. You might recognise uh, his name's Donald McLean. Um, I don't know what that name um, means to you, but so I think a lot American of... Pie. <laughs> well, there's two, isn't there? There's either American Pie or there's the Spy, um, Donald McLean, who uh, was one of the Cambridge Five, um, the the famous spy ring, um, and. Uh, uh, he's not that one, um, uh, nor the uh, the writer of American Pie, um, but he is his father. He's the father of the spy, um, which is quite an interesting um, fact about him. He was um, a liberal politician, uh, Sir Donald McLean, um, and uh, as I described last week, he acted as leader of the opposition for two years um, between 1918 and 1920, despite the fact that um, his grouping in Parliament only had... Uh, the third highest number of seats uh, in the 1918 um, election. Um, his um, uh, group had sort of split off from the main Liberal Party. Um, Lloyd George had gone into, uh, formed a coalition government. And so those who didn't form uh, the coalition sort of split off. And the, the 1918 election, um, that was actually won by Sinn Féin, who got the most number of seats, but of course they don't take their seats. Um, and then after that, the Labour Party. And so last week, uh, we were talking um, about the, the leader of the, the Labour Party um, at the time, who um, quite rightly, I think, William Adamson, um, should, have, should have been leader of the opposition during this period. Um, but the next highest number of seats, the third, third place, um, was the, the Liberals under Sir Donald Maclean. So um, in some ways, I think he sort of um, doesn't really deserve to, to be uh, counted as leader of the opposition. But all the history books tell us that he was. I suppose if, if everyone else is in government, then the opposition is just the biggest, the leader of the biggest group who's left. Yeah, indeed. And under that definition, it would have been the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, and, and so you have this sort of tussle. And as I said, 
you know, looking at the, um, the histories, you'd think that, that this is because Labour was sort of, um, in, you know, in a in disarray or, or not wanting to take the position. But that's not true. Um, and so we saw that William Adamson uh, actually uh, asserted his claim to be the leader of the opposition. Um, but Sir Donald McLean, as the, the leader of the, the uh, Liberals outside the government, also did as well. And it's the, the history books sort of tell us that, that it was the Liberals who, um, who formed it. Um, but he was quite an interesting character. He was um, born in... Uh, Farnworth in Lancashire uh, near Bolton. Uh, he was the son of a Scottish cordwainer um, and whenever I hear that, that word I always think of um, Kenneth Williams, a uh, cordwangler, but it's a uh, cordwainer <laughs> of course, um, which is a shoemaker um, and the family moved to Wales and he was uh, educated uh, at Carmarthen Grammar School and then left uh, to begin training as a solicitor which is uh, the profession that he, he then um, eventually practiced which brought him to London. Um, he was uh, quite a sort of moral social campaigner. He was a, a teetotaler and an active campaigner for the temperance movement. I'm not sure how far that uh, would get you in, in politics uh, a, lot of, a lot of the time that we're, we're looking at. But um, he was um, uh, also one of the founders of the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. So he had quite a, uh, a significant um, involvement in lots of social campaigns. And that's what brought him to the Liberal Party. And he was elected to the House of Commons in 1906. And then he was defeated in uh, the 1910 election in January um, and then returned in the election in December of that year um, as MP for Peebles. Um, but he wasn't really in the sort of front rank of party politics. He was actually a deputy speaker of the Commons. He was made um, deputy chair of, of Ways and Means in 1911 and served um, in that role up until uh, the election in 1918. Um, and it was only because of that election in 1918 that Asquith... Um, lost his seat, the, the, lib the Liberal former Prime Minister who was leading that sort of breakaway faction, he lost his seat and so one of the only significant leading figures who was left um, to lead the party then uh, was Donald McLean and so he became uh, chair of the Parliamentary Party and its um, effective leader um, for about the next two years until Asquith came back in a by-election um, and sort of took, took back over as leader. But he was quite effective um, and uh, so a lot of his colleagues thought that it would have been better if, if he'd stayed as, as leader rather than Asquith. This confusion about uh, the, the, the Liberals and who, who was in charge and all that, is this, is this also, is this at a time where the Liberals as a political force which had dominated so much in the 19th century especially, was starting to disintegrate yes and it was the split in uh, 1916 that sort of occurred when um asquith was ousted and lloyd george became prime minister um he, he then formed this this coalition government and and that was sort of the, the the big split that occurred and so you had then um lloyd george um going in with the conservatives and having what they called a coupon election in 1918 where supporters of the government were given a sort of letter of endorsement um, and, and that sort of really uh, formalised the split between the Liberal factions. And that split lasted through until the sort of mid-20s. Um, actually, uh, McLean was quite involved in um, Liberal politics in the 20s when they sort of came back together again. Uh, so after 1922, when Lloyd George um, sort of lost office, they came back together again with Asquith um, sort of as a, a leading figure. Um, he then uh, sort of later died and Lloyd George um, sort of was in the, the leadership role but by that time they would re were really falling out of 
out of favour, the Labour Party during that decade displaced them as the main party of um, of opposition, and then, of course, um, as a, a contender for government. So we're in a period of transition here. And as you say, the Liberal Party that dominated for so long um, alongside the Conservative Party, you see this transition um, where uh, the two main parties then from about the 20s onwards become uh, the Conservatives and the Labour Party rather than the Liberals. And so from Donald McLean, the last leader of the opposition this month, it's Arthur Henderson, Labour leader of the opposition in 1931. So this is um, jumping forward quite a bit, um, because obviously the rule is that if someone becomes prime minister, um, they don't uh, qualify for our list. So uh, we're jumping forward to um, Arthur Henderson, uh, who was Labour leader of the opposition for uh, just a couple of months, as um, we, we sometimes get with some of these leaders, um, in 1931. Um, but having made the case a few weeks ago for a fairly little-known um, leader, William Adamson, um, to be acknowledged as the first Labour leader, um, this week's one, um, Arthur Henderson, is, is a much more familiar name uh, to historians if you look at the, the origins of the Labour Party. Um, and despite only officially being leader of the opposition for a couple of months, he was actually leader of the Labour Party three times in different decades. Uh, the first time being in, in 1908, he was one of the, the founders of the Labour Party um, and actually took over from Keir Hardy uh, when he first uh, took office. Um, so um, we've got um, uh, the... Uh, his background, he was um, like a lot of Labour leaders of this time. He was born in Scotland uh, to working class parents. Um, his mother was a domestic servant and his, his father was a, a textile worker. Um, and they moved to Newcastle uh, when he was uh, quite young and he became an apprentice uh, at an iron foundry from the age of, uh, of 12. Um, he then entered politics through the trade union movement um, and he was, as I said, a delegate at the conference that founded the Labour Party, um, as it was at the time, the Labour Representation Committee in 1900, uh, and then was elected to Parliament uh, in 1903, uh, wonderfully for the seat of Barnard Castle. Um, ah, which, uh, <laughs> we know it well. Indeed. Um, and uh, uh, when Keir Hardy then stood down as chairman of the Labour Party in 1908, um, Arthur Henderson was elected to replace him. And so that made him de facto leader uh, for two years. Um, he stood down in 1910, but then came back to the role um, in 1914 um, for three years. Um, and during that time, when he became leader for the second time in 1914, um, that was the time of the First World War, obviously. And um, when Asquith formed his coalition government, he became Labour's first uh, ever cabinet minister. Uh, he uh, served as president of the Board of Education in that wartime uh, coalition. Um, and then he had a couple of other roles as well in the uh, the first Labour government. He was Home Secretary in the first Labour government in 1924. Uh, and in the next Labour government in 1929, he became Foreign Secretary. So he's a very significant figure. Um, but his um, entry into the sort of list here as uh, leader of the opposition was, was really because of the crisis that hit the Labour Party in 1931. Um, I, I won't go through the whole history of it, but uh, anyone who studied the period knows that Ramsay MacDonald, who was the Labour Prime Minister, uh, was facing a, a huge rebellion in the Labour cabinet over cuts to uh, welfare payments as a result of a financial crisis. Uh, he wanted to cut them significantly and there was a rebellion. The Labour Party split at that point and uh, Ramsay MacDonald, in what's become a great betrayal in Labour Party mythology, um, formed a, uh, a national government with support from the Conservatives and the majority of Labour MPs and cabinet ministers split off um, and uh, expelled Ramsay MacDonald from the Labour Party. So because of that, 
uh, they looked to a, a significant figure and Arthur Henderson, of course, had been foreign secretary in that government. Um, and he became uh, then the leader of the Labour Party for the third time. Uh, and because they were uh, the next largest um, opposition party became leader of the opposition. Um, he was only in that for two months because he led the party into the 1931 election where they were completely annihilated. Um, and uh, they, they were reduced to just 50 seats um, and he lost his own seat. So he, he exited at that point. Um, but a very significant figure in the origins of the Labour Party and of course the, the um, circumstances in which he became leader of the opposition are, are quite significant. It's interesting, and maybe this is a sort of theme uh, through several of the, the, the these uh, these opposition we've done, Nigel. Is just how long they are in and around politics for. First elected in 1903, yeah, it wasn't until 1931 that he becomes, as we would see him, leader of the opposition. At that point, he'd been in and out of cabinet. He'd been chief whip. He'd been uh, leader of the Labour Party in government, and, and it's, it's it's just an extraordinary. Lesson maybe there are sort of like who's up, who's down. You've had your chance. Uh, well, they've got to leave parliament now because that's all over. Just the sort of perseverance of sort of three decades in parliament, in and out of government, in and out of top jobs is very different to today. Oh, completely. Yes. I mean, we've got a situation now where um, you have, um, for example, when David Cameron became leader of the opposition, he'd only been in Parliament then for what four years. Um, and so people sort of rise a lot, a lot quicker nowadays. Um, but also, as you say, the, the sheer resilience, he, he actually, Arthur Henderson, holds the record for the most number of political comebacks because he, he kept losing his seat. Um, he lost his seat sort of for the first time in um, I think 1910, um, and uh, and he kept coming back in by-elections. He came back um, a, a total of four times. Wow. Um, so, you know, this perseverance, he, he really say, did, He really didn't take the hint, did he, for the election? <laughs> no, I mean, there is something to be said for once the electorate has told you a, a couple of times that you should take the hint. But, you know, in his in, in his case, you know, he went on to become Home Secretary, then Foreign Secretary, then, then leader of the Labour Party again. So I suppose the lesson is that, you know, you, you perhaps shouldn't take the hint sometimes. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.